Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is David Britton with the David Britton team in Indianapolis, Indiana. Last year, he closed 313 transactions with a total sales volume of $52 million. His average sales price was $167,000, of which 37% were buyers and 63% were sellers. He has a 12-member team, three realtor partner buyer focus, one realtor partner seller focus, two admin staff, two marketing staff, two personal assistants, one part-time bookkeeper, and one team leader. David Britton is the team leader of the David Britton team. He's been an agent for 23 years. In his best year, David sold 335 homes worth 53 million. He has sold over 4,000 homes in his career worth a half a billion dollars. In this call, David talks about becoming the top agent in his office his rookie year setting minimum standards to achieve high goals, helping over 400 move-up buyers purchase new construction homes with his guaranteed sales program, including a detailed discussion of how it works and the pitfalls to avoid, how he's selling homes twice as fast as his peer average, marketing campaign to his past clients and sphere of influence that accounts for 75% of his business, the script he uses to stay in touch with his past clients, the four past client events that he holds every year and why he does them, how to select a geographic farm and how to contact them, the key to tracking the source of your business, why he pays his sales team different than 99% of his peers, team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, David. Thank you. Hey, David, it's great to have you here. David, before we talk about what you're doing now, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Well, I worked in the in the housing industry. I started as a carpenter and worked my way up to a job superintendent, project manager, then became a, a home builder myself and ran my own custom building home business for a number of years. I spent 18 years in the in the home building industry and thought uh, this is what I enjoy doing. One of the things I enjoyed the most about that was working with the customers and helping them get the home the way they wanted it and the things in the home that they wanted. So I thought realtor, builder, realtor made a lot of sense. So I decided to uh, to pursue a real estate career in 1992. So you had been building homes for almost 20 years and then you got a license to start acting as an agent. Did you continue to act as a builder or did you make a transition at that point directly in the brokerage? I made a clean break from, from building. 
I started working with some builders that I knew. I knew a lot of the builders in the area and went to them and started doing some marketing and sales for them, but I didn't want to be their competition. I wanted to be their associate slash affiliate. Why did you choose to move out of construction and the building and into the brokerage? Well, I enjoyed the building business. Working in the industry is physically is demanding, and it's a young man's game. And then as you get into being a builder yourself and that, it's not as physically demanding. But I enjoyed the, the building process and seeing people get the end result of the home they wanted. Bottom line, when I when I worked with realtors who brought transactions to me, I looked at it and said, you know, they don't have to warrant their work for 10 years. They don't have to spend months putting the thing together. They don't have to live with the warranty and the callbacks. And they make a pretty good return on their investment as far as time goes. So I'm not sure who the smarter one in this equation is. So I thought, well, I'll go give it a try on the real estate side. And 23 years later, I'm enjoying it a great deal. When you switched over and went into the brokerage side, did you have a fast start or a slow start? In my mind, I think it was a fast start. It was November of 1992 when I got in the business, and I I went and met with the REMAX broker in our area. And at that point in time, REMAX was only hiring the top 10% of agents in our marketplace for their offices. I went and met with him and said, you know, I, I want to be an agent with your company. He said, you've never sold real estate. I said, no, but I've gone to, you know, closing on home building transactions for over 300 deals. I've been involved in construction of one way or another of over 1,500 homes. So this is what I know. And I've set some goals for myself and some limitations. And if I can't hit these limits that I set for myself, I'm not going to stay in real estate. And when I talked to him a little more about it, I realized that my limits were going to make me the top producer in that office if I hit them. And as he looked at the business plan that I took in with my interview and realized that I was serious about the business and I probably would hit my goals, he decided to make an exception. And so the two of us had a long, long running successful relationship. And I was the top agent in the office in 1993. And every year that I was with that organization to follow. Why do you think you had such a fast start? Sounds like you had a business plan. You had some goals and objectives. What was in that plan? How did you actually make that happen, that you became the top agent in the office your rookie year? One, it was I had two daughters at home and a wife, and I was, you know, responsible for producing an income, and I had a pretty decent income in the past, and was like, you know, I'm I'm not going to do this and just barely get by. So I went into it with an aggressive attitude. I also, you know, when you're hungry, you you work hard. And when you uh, set some goals and make yourself some minimum requirements and some goals to achieve, whether you set a goal to make $50,000 in real estate, $100,000 in real estate, or a million dollars in real estate, it's just a matter of how hard you want to work and what plan you design to do it. And I believe whatever the number is, you design a plan to accomplish it. David, do you recall how many closings you had that first full year, the 1993? I do. I've got it here. I, one thing I did was I set myself a minimum standard that in 1993, I had to generate more than $100,000 in GCI to allow myself to stay in the business. And... At that point in time, none of the other agents in the office had ever hit $100,000 in GCI. So I was setting the bar kind of high. 
I ended up the year at 112,000 and change for GCI, and there were 39 transactions that closed that year. I had that $100,000 barrier, and I achieved it. Unfortunately, the next year, I thought it came pretty easy year one, so I didn't work the plan as hard as I did year then year two as I did in year one. My income dropped from 112 down to 64,000, and I realized you're screwing around and you're not working the plan and following the plan you laid out. You're either going to fix it or get out of the business. And after that, every year that followed up until 2007 when the market crashed, every year increased from year number three on. So it's just a matter of designing what you want to do, set a plan out to do it, and then do it. Because I think 60 or 70% of real estate is just showing up and doing the work. Your first year, you closed 39 transactions, hit 100000 in GCI. You mentioned that you had gone out and talked to many of the builders that you knew to do their business and help them broker that business. Was that your main business? Did you do anything else that first year to generate business, or was it all builder business? A percent of it was builder business, but I did what everybody does, except I, I pursued it. I went to you know everybody you know. You know, made sure they were where I was in business, and I followed up with them and stayed in touch with them. And were being in the building industry, they knew I was a hard worker, that I was honest, and that if I told them I was going to do something, I'd do it. So I had a pretty decent reputation when I got in the real estate business of following through. So when I got into it, and and they saw, you know, David's serious about this. He's working it as hard as he, you know, worked in his other career. Referrals from friends, family, soon past clients were referring, you know, I mean, it was going from zero to to wherever, but I mean, it was friends, family, past clients, and some of the builders that I worked with, but again, it wasn't like, oh, here, let me hand you 30 transactions because I know you're in building. I mean, there were probably 10 or 15% of that was builder business, and the rest of it was from working hard. I mean, I basically had open houses every Saturday and Sunday those first two years I was out there. If I didn't have a listing, then I was either holding the builder spec home or I was holding somebody else's listing open. I don't like doing open houses. I don't do them anymore, but it put me face-to-face, belly-to-belly with people that were out looking for houses. Now, David, you mentioned you started in 92, so if we do some quick math, sounds like you've been doing this almost 23 years. It seems like a long time. How many homes did you sell last year? We closed 313 transactions last year. Do you recall the sales volume? I do. It was $52,510,000. We're in a market that's pretty affordable. We got an average sales price of $168,000, which last year was the highest average sales price we've ever had. We've ranged from a little over 100, and each year we increase it a little bit. But so we're not in one of these markets with real high-priced homes, but the good news is we're our market's been pretty stable for years. We had some ups and some downs, but no big swings. David, would you mind disclosing to us what your total GCI was last year? We were just a hair under 1.5, 1.47 and change. That is excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. David, how many homes did you sell in your best year, and what year was that? We closed the most transactions in 2006, where we closed 335 transactions. We did that with 53.2 million, so just a hair more than we did last year. Our GCI that year was 1.2, so 
in theory, our best year was last year where our GCI was higher and we were only a million dollars off on total volume. But we sold a little fewer homes, but a few higher priced ones. David, do you know approximately how many homes you've sold in your career? I do. We're just a little over 4,000. Do you happen to know the sales volume? I do. I have. I keep all this stuff. I'm kind of uh, kind of analytical, so I, I kind of study all that. Yeah, we're through the end of the year. I haven't added 2015 in yet, but through the end of 14, we were at 579 million. You just went over the half billion dollar mark. Yeah, looking forward to the billion dollar mark. Let's step back for a minute and talk about where you're at. Could you please tell us where is Indianapolis, Indiana? Well, we're called the Crossroads of America, but we're right in the center of the state of Indiana. We're the home of the Indianapolis Colts, the Indianapolis 500, and the Indiana Pacers are our claim to sports fame. We're halfway between Chicago and Louisville, and we're four hours east of St. Louis and four hours west of Columbus, Ohio. Indianapolis, Indiana, what's the population there? Indianapolis is equal to our county, and then we've got Indianapolis metro area, which is kind of the donut counties around the county where Indianapolis is. We've got about 1.7 million people in the metro area, in the area that we service of that. Typically, we're down in that 500,000 range, but the metro area that we work by relationships and referrals is a total of about 1.7 million. David, can you please describe your current real estate market? We have an average of about 140,000 in our marketplace. Our trends are from about 2000 to 2006, we saw an increase of about one to one and a half percent per year. So not a real fast-moving market, but an upward trend of 1.5% appreciation. And then 2007, 2008, 9, 10, we saw a depreciation of about 1.5%. Then 11 kind of bounced along a murky bottom, 11 and 12, and kind of stayed in that less than 1% depreciation. And then 13 and 14, we've seen a 1.5% to 2, 2.5%, depending on what part of 10, appreciation. So we didn't see a lot of price swing one way or the other. We did see the market slow down. There were a lot less homes sold, but we didn't see the prices plummet. So you didn't have a radical drop. I assume that means you didn't have a whole lot of foreclosures and REO sales during the Great Recession. We had a lot. At one point, distressed properties made up. A little over 30% of our sales when we got into that 2009, 10, 11 time frame, the retail sellers just had a hard time selling and a lot of it became foreclosure and distress stuff, but it didn't drive the price down terribly. Do you know what your average days on the market is? Average days for our marketplace is just a little under 120. My team average is a little under 60. Why do you think that you're twice as fast as the market? I think it's because my team does a very good job of marketing and presenting the properties we have for sale through print, through internet, through all the things that we do. So, And we also try to not list a whole lot of properties that are way overpriced and try to uh, 
market and sell the ones we've got. So pretty basic formula, but it's what we do day in, day out. Do you have a niche or a specialization in your market? Well, yes and no. Geographically, we try to work the south half of the city from where we market to draw business to. Referrals and relationships take us all around the ND metro area, and we serve that area through those. But we target specifically the geographic area where, where our office is and try to basically work within five to eight miles radius from our office. We do a lot of geographic farming. We also do a lot of staying in touch with our past clients and our personal sphere. So we also do some builder business still. 20-some years later, we, we market and sell homes for some of the builders as specs. We also know how to speak house as a language. It doesn't intimidate me or my team to take buyers to builders and have them work with them through the building process. And a lot of agents get intimidated by that process, but it's second nature to me and my team. So we do we work with a lot of builders on building new homes uh, with our clients also. Well, David, I'd like to, to go into how you're generating your leads in business. One of the ways that you're bringing in business is you, you mentioned before that you started working with builders and that's still part of your business. Which builders are you working with? How did you find them and who are they? We work with a variety of the, and usually they're the, they're the large volume builders. We've got some small custom builders, but in today's building industry in our marketplace, the, the guy that builds a handful of houses a year is just becoming harder and harder to find because lending, lot availability, and those things. So it's kind of pushed the majority of those guys out of our market, unfortunately, which would have been the builder the size I would have been when I was building homes. But we work with several of the large volume builders from Ryland and Ryan and Drees and Fisher Homes and David Weekly, MI Homes, and Westport Homes. So they're all some regional, some national builders that work in our marketplace. And we've seen a big change in the building industry here in the time I've been a realtor also. We saw in 2005 and 2006, we saw housing starts hit a peak of over 15,000 building permits a year for the Indy metro area. And then just two years ago, we saw that number get down under 3,000. So the building industry took a dramatic shift going from over 15,000 to under 3,000 new homes a year. Yeah, that's an 80% drop. It is. And we lost a lot of builders who'd been in business, some two and three generations, some very successful builders, but they just had commitments out there on land and inventory that they couldn't maintain when the market crashed. When I think of regional and national builders, I usually think that they have their own staff of salespeople. So what are you doing for these regional and national builders? A lot of them do have local salespeople, and sometimes we compete for the same clients. But we're marketing to some different audiences than some of the builders are marketing to. Other times it's, you know, I don't want to go and sit in there and buy a home and have everybody that's involved in the transaction working for the builder. If I'm the consumer, I need somebody on my side of the table. That's a role we play because we go in and we're working for the buyer and we've been through the process many, many times and we know that we can help them and whether it's initially when they're saying, well, I really think I want to put this, this, and this in the home, 
do I should I do that? You know, what's it going to do for resale? Is that a good investment? Should I spend the money on that or should I spend the money on this? It may be later as we get into negotiations. It may be later when we do a we'll go on a pre drywall inspection with them, not to be the inspector, but just to be another set of eyes. We encourage them to get an inspection, but sometimes the builder sees it as blue and the buyer sees it as green and they need another set of eyes that both trust that can help them see the path to to come together on the solution. So we serve as that role. It's not an adversarial role to either party. I mean, obviously we're there working on the buyer, but the builder knows that we're going to use common sense and we've been through this process before and that we can be a benefit to both. So you're acting typically as a buyer's representative? In the case I just described, we also do some marketing for spec homes for several of the builders where they hire us to utilize our marketing efforts to help promote people to sell inventory they've built for sale. And we've had a lot of luck doing that. And again, we're both out beating the bushes, so to say, for buyers, but we've had good success marketing the builder spec homes. In some areas, for instance, the builder comes into the city and they're not that well known or they're new to the side of town we're on and they come in and they want to they want to build homes and they may have a great reputation but nobody knows who they are so sometimes having somebody who's familiar with the area and a name that's recognized is kind of an endorsement for the builder saying you know well he doesn't market just anybody which is I don't so he, they must be all right if David's working with them so that's another benefit we bring to some of the builders when we market their spec homes. And then the the third thing we do with builders is I I do some guaranteed sales where salesperson over builder XYZ calls and says, I've got Bill and Betty Smith in here and they want to build a new home with us, but they've got a home to sell over at 123 Main Street. And if we can get their home sold on Main Street, we can start building their new home. And would you consider guaranteeing the sale of that home? Meaning, if you can't sell it by the time I get the new home done, that you'll buy it for a price so that all three of us can win and we can go to closing. And I've done that for years, and I've, I've done over 400 of those for various builders. So that's one of those that you got to be good at what you do, and you got to believe in yourself, because if not, you're writing a check to buy houses, and you don't really want to own those homes. So it does hone your pricing skills, believe me. <laughs> You've done quite a few 400 guaranteed sales over the years. How many of those properties have you ended up buying? About 10%, so around 40 of them. And I've basically just continued to market them and sell them occasionally. If I get one that I get into too deep, I'll keep it and rent it. But in theory, by the time I buy it, there's not a margin left for me. So I try to get them sold and move on. So... I was doing about 5% purchases, and then I had a bunch of houses guaranteed on September 11th when that day in history hit. I had to buy a bunch of those because our market kind of tightened up there for several months, so that pushed my average up. And then the market crash kind of uh, hit, and we had a few there we had to buy. And But we've performed every time we needed to. When we said we'd buy a house, we would. The builders know that. If David says he'll buy the house by this date, then they can take it to the bank and start building a new one. 
What's the typical arrangement on terms and how you structure those those guaranteed sales so that, as you just said, 90% of them will end up selling? Typically, what I do is I look at what the best scenario I think it's going to sell for for the consumer is and say, okay, I think it's going to, you know, best case scenario, we could sell it for X. And then you're going to have these cost of sales involved just like you will, no matter who buys it. And if we can't sell it in five or six months, depending on which builder we're working with and their construction time, then I would buy it for Y. And Y is usually X minus eight, nine, 10%. If it works for them, then we put it on paper and we start marketing the house and the builder starts building the house. And my goal is to make them homeless and sell the home quickly. And they want that because the sooner it sells, the more money they make. And if it doesn't sell by the by the completion of construction, then we purchase it and they move on and we clean up our mess. <laughs> on those 40 that you've ended up having to purchase, there's a 8 to 10% haircut off the price. And then they also have closing costs. Do you include, do you still receive a commission during that sale as well, in addition to the 8 to 10%? I do. It's 8 to 10% off the price minus all the normal closing costs and commission. And then the builder pays me 3 or 4% on the new home to offset my risk. So it's a calculated risk. It's not one you want to make without giving it a lot of thought, but it could be a win-win-win for all three parties involved. And I assume that over the years, you've generated a lot more business than the 400 transactions you've been involved in by being able to advertise that you have a guaranteed sell program. I assume there have been a lot of people that have initially started the conversation with you that ended up working with you, but not in the guaranteed sell program. That's very accurate. We sit down with them and sometimes that additional concession doesn't work for them. So they don't want to do that. We end up listing the home for them anyway. And the other thing about the guaranteed sale program is once we list it and guarantee the sale, say it's a $120,000 home and we guarantee them a net of 100000 and a buyer comes along and buys the home and the net is 105000 they get whatever the transaction generates them. They just have a not less than number that they're guaranteed. So. It's actually a a true win-win-win. But we also, as you mentioned, we generate business from it. A lot of times we'll list the home for them. The other thing is is it gives us a chance to have another person in our past client database. I've done three guarantees for one family in particular for the same couple. They got pregnant. We're going to have a baby. They didn't want the small ranch they had with the baby, so I guaranteed the small ranch so they could move into the the two-story. A couple years later, they had a couple more kids. They needed a bigger two-story with a basement, so I guaranteed the sale of that so they could build another one. And then they had a couple more kids, and they needed a really big two-story with a big basement, so I guaranteed the sale of that so they could build again. And they went to three different builders, and each time they went to the builder, they said, well, we already have who we want to deal with, you know. (laughs) We just, we need to figure out if you're going to be able to build for us, but we know who's going to be the guarantee provider. And the builder loves you because you're guaranteeing to sell the home. They're happy to pay you the commission you said, maybe usually 3 or 4% or whatever they're paying. And so that's just sweetening the deal for you to take that risk. Yeah, I mean, they've they got a non-contingent buyer when we, when we work that out. And 
that's what everybody wants is to be able to start construction now and get the deal done and close. So, but no, it's, it's worked well for all parties and it'd be very interesting to know how many transactions that's generated for us over the years, because we generate a lot of business from our past clients and their referrals to us. Per the program itself, again, on structure, because people are always curious, do you have any other rules about the program? For instance, are there only certain types of property or certain price points that you'll guarantee? I listen to all, but as I look to it, I mean, there's some that in areas of concern with well or septic that I don't may not take the risk. There's some where they're wanting to sell a $400,000 home and downsize to a $200,000 home, and mathematically that doesn't work well. So it has to be a good business decision on all parties, but risk and reward has to weigh out. So sometimes the first glance you say, oh, no, that won't work out because they're making a lateral move. Well, the people say, well, what if we pay you a little more fee here or the builder pays you more commission on that end so that the risk and reward line up? So I look at all scenarios. I don't have any set guidelines that say, no, this won't work because... You can look at it and see if there's ways to make them work. I don't do all that I look at. I rule out several because of concerns on how they're upkept, how they're clean. You know, do they look good? Are they going to sell? Because if I look at a property and say, I don't see that I'm going to be able to sell that in that period of time, I don't want to get involved in it. You know, so I pass on several. Clients pass several times on what I offer them because they know better than I what it's worth. and. Sometimes, you know, they just got to prove to themselves what it's worth, and that's okay. I use a four-letter word in real estate a lot, and it's called next. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any other rules, such as the seller has got to list the property at fair market value or adjust the price to fair market value within X number of days of the end of the agreement before you would have to purchase? I lay it out up front and say... You can choose the first price point for 21 to 30 days. The second one needs to be here. The third one needs to be here. And after 63 days on the market, 321-day price adjustments, I have the right to price it where I need it to be. Now, I don't abuse that because, again, I intend to get referrals from this customer. But I also have to be in control because, ultimately, I need to get it sold. And I have to keep in mind that who my client is, I have to take care of them. I have to take care of myself. So it has to be pretty well spelled out. What we used to have was a one-page guaranteed sale contract. It's about nine pages long now because at the end of every year, we look at it and say, what did we encounter this year that wasn't really covered well? So we add it to the contract, and the contract grows in length. But... It protects everybody because all those scenarios are spelled out in advance. The other thing we do is we do have all the houses inspected when I, after I agree and they agree to a price, it's subject to an inspection and subject to them completing the items the inspector finds. So I pay for the inspection, it comes back, it needs these 12 things done. If the seller says, no, I don't want to do those 12 things, they can cancel the, the agreement and get out. If they do want to do them, then they get started, get the repairs done, and they agree to get them done within 30 days so that they're out of the way. We don't have them as an issue when a buyer gets involved. 
You mentioned that your agreement went from one page to nine pages and it spells everything out. I assume that means that the pricing structure that we just talked about where the seller can set the first price, but then there will be adjustment one, two, and three. Those actual numbers are spelled out in the agreement itself, correct? Absolutely. And that third adjustment, that bottom number that you you get to, I assume you have somewhere in your mind a relationship of that number to what you originally estimated as fair market value. What is the relationship between the two? It varies. And also, it varies during the process because if we're getting good activity, we just don't have an offer, then we may be a a short adjustment away from selling it. Based on not having any activity, I may have like the home too well and put too high a price tag on it. So, but it, it's just like being working with any seller. It's like, okay, it's time to make a price adjustment. When I say they're they're carved in stone, they're laid out and the time frame's laid out. But if we've got a second showing on Tuesday and we've got a price adjustment scheduled on Wednesday, we're not automatically going to do the price adjustment on Wednesday because, again, we're representing the customer first and our interest second. Let's go back to your original example. You said that a property that was valued $120,000 and you would give a guaranteed sell at $100,000. So what is that? That's about uh, 15% below fair market value is where your final line is. Is that is that pretty typical that that's where the bottom line is? I would say if, if I thought it was truly going to sell at $120,000. If I thought that was the best sales price, the, the sold price it was going to be was $120,000, then I'd probably be somewhere around one hundred and five to 109000 for a guaranteed sales price as far as the purchase price. We'd probably be listing it for one hundred and twenty-two to one hundred and twenty-five because there's always that room between list price and sales price. And at that point, I'm focused on sales price. So if we had a hundred and say we had a $108,000 guaranteed sales price, and then we had commissions, taxes, title, insurance, or, you know, t- all those things. And if closing costs in that price range are dominant, you know, with the, the sellers being, being charged $2,500 of the buyer's closing cost, when we look at the comparables, then we're going to factor that into the equation. So they're 108, you know, time you take the cost off of that, they, their net might be called 97. So, just like uh, if they sold it to anybody. The difference was if we're involved in it, that's what I'm going to guarantee them to sell at. And we go on the market. Let's say we started at 125. We're on the market three weeks. We need to go to 121.5. And then we might go to 117 or 18. And then 115 by that 63-day time frame. We're still above the guaranteed number. And then we might go to 112.5. And then before we're purchasing the home, we're down to 109 or 110. So we're right at that number we guaranteed them at. So when I go to buy it, there's not a chance I'm going to run around and put it back on the market at 110 or 15 because the market's already proven it wouldn't purchase it at that point. (laughs) Do you have anything in your agreement that states you get down to the last 30 days or so before you're going to be asked to purchase this You've guaranteed 108, and an offer comes in at 110 or 109, and the seller says, I don't want to accept that. Do you have anything in your agreement that says, no, you really need to accept that because we've already tested the market. Here are the values that we're seeing. This is above the guaranteed sell. 
and I don't really want to own the property. The market's already proved the value. Is there anything in those last couple of days that says if it's within the X of the guaranteed sell program, the seller's going to sell? Oh, mine takes it much further than that. Mine starts day one and basically says that if an offer comes in, I can ask him to take it. Now, again, I've got to look at who I'm taking care of. So we're on the market at 125. An offer comes in at 119. It's clean. It nets them $10,000 more than the list price. And they say, well, you know, Dave, we really don't want to do that. We got to have that discussion because, again, we're working together to sell the house. You know, it may or may not get better. Now, we may, we may go back and counter it and, you know, treat it just like a retail sale. And the buyer may walk away. And we got to look at each other and say, okay, well, the next time we got to be more realistic. But in the beginning, it's pretty easy because everybody's excited about getting it sold and they're above that. You get into that halfway point, and now the price is your guaranteed sale number might be at 108, and now you get an offer at 112, and it means, oh, I got a double move. I'm going to have those expenses. I'm not going to net more than $1,000 more than you guaranteed me. I don't really want to do that. The agreement says you got to take an offer if I ask you to. And the reality is that offer might come in at 106, and the guarantee number's at 108, and I may ask him to take it because I'd rather write a check for two grand to make up the shortfall than buy the home. They get what's guaranteed to them, and they have to make a double move because I paint the picture from day one. They need to be prepared to make a double move. They need to have that plan, and they need to factor that expense into the equation because I don't want to buy the home, and they know that. I make it very clear through the whole process that this is a process to get the home sold you know, I'm guaranteeing you a floor. You're not going to get any less than this. But we've got to work together to get it get it sold. Your agreement, if the offer in these scenarios you just outlined, let's say you guaranteed 108, it comes in at 106. You say, hey, let's take it. I'll make up the difference of two. And the seller in the end has the ultimate decision. They say no. Does your agreement allow you then to back out of the guaranteed sale? When they say no, basically they're releasing me from buying the house. But then the builder says, well, you know, you've got this liquidated damages clause over here because we've got the house half built. <laughs> it's going to cost you $20,000 if you cancel the deal with us. <laughs> and the seller has to really think about it because the intent of the purchase all along was to build a new home and to get out of their home cleanly and they're getting out of their home with what they were guaranteed to get out of their home to begin with. So nothing changed other than their hopes that they'd get more than that. And sometimes you're the bad guy. Well, we just went down the bad path or the ugly path, the worst case scenario path. And you, you have to do that to know what your risks are and what you have at risk. But I assume that the majority of the time these things work out and they sell long. Well, you said 90% of the time they work out long before you end up having to purchase the property, correct? That's correct. I've got one that's closing next week that... I like the home too much is the term my team tells me when I miss the price. <laughs> so I called the value too high. We got an offer on it and they want to uh, purchase it. It's $10,000 less than I guaranteed them. But I know in the long run after reality check that 
I missed the number. So the seller who I've got it listed for who's building the new home is the one who benefits from having a guaranteed sale because they're moving into their new home and they're getting what I guaranteed them out of the sale of this home. I'm not buying it, but the net result is is they're getting $10,000 or more on it than the market would bear. So on that one, it means I'm working for free and I'll still make a couple dollars on the end by the time I factor in the commissions on both transactions. But even if it meant I wrote a check and didn't get anything out of it, at that point, it was the best business decision for me to represent myself and the client and have them move on. So sometimes you bleed a little and sometimes you make a little money. (laughs) And I assume in this scenario, you're going to make sure that the seller knows that you took care of them, that you're putting up that extra 10000 that it's whittling away your profit, your your time. You're going to maybe end up working for free or worse. And you're going to make sure that they know that in a, in a kind way so that uh, they feel really good about you and they refer their friends and they come back to talk to you again in the future. That's my goal is, you know, I've got to work for free on this one and I hope to, to make it up in the future. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when you track business and you look at where this piece of business came from and it was referred by so-and-so who was referred by so-and-so. And sometimes you find those pieces of business have a eight, nine, or 10-person transaction. So you go you look way back here and these, you sold this person's house and they referred you to this one, they referred you to this one, they referred you to this one. So when you look and you see those those branches have 10 or 12 branches off of them, you think, you know, if I had to work for free on that one and I ended up getting three pieces of business down the road because I treated them right. And even if I don't, I still got to go to bed at night and feel comfortable that I, I treated everybody the way they should be treated and the way I would want to be treated. And if I do that, I might have plenty of business. And I think there's one other thing here, and that is you now have a story for future folks that are thinking about doing your guaranteed sell program that you can pull out when they say, yeah, David, are you really going to go negative on one of these things? And you'll be able to say, yeah, I just did it for the Smiths where I had to put up $10,000. I mean, this is a real deal. Yeah, you don't want too many of those just to brag about. Sure, that's true. Yeah, one one, one of those true. will last a long time. <laughs> David, let me let me ask uh, one last question here with guaranteed sell programs. If there was an agent listening to us and they're thinking they'd like to put a guaranteed sell program in place, what recommendations do you have for them? You got to make sure you have the wherewithal to the guarantee what you say you're going to guarantee because the builders will want proof that that transaction is going to be a bona fide transaction and. If you're if you're queasy about the risk involved, you may not want to make it because you got to be aware that you know if you guarantee the sale at home, you're going to be making your mortgage payment and one on a home that's sitting out there until you get it sold. So it can be a good source of business, but you know I used to have a whole head of hair, and if you see my photo, there's not much left. <laughs> and uh, I can relate part of that hair loss to guaranteed sales. David, I, I should have asked one other question here, and that is you made 40 purchases over the years. Did you personally make those, or did you have a pool of investors standing behind you to help purchase those properties? I personally purchased those houses. So I set up a little LLC so that my accountant and my attorney told me, if you're going to own these houses, don't own them personally because, God forbid, somebody fall and break their back on the ice have an LLC, have it well insured, have an umbrella, 
policy to protect your assets. But yeah, no, I'm I'm on the hook. Depending on where I borrowed the money, I may have borrowed it from the bank. I may have borrowed it from somebody who wanted to loan it on a I don't want to say a hard money loan, but you know, a private person with money that wanted to uh, to get a return on their money, or whether it's a line of credit at the bank, or whether it's a true mortgage. I've done all the above, <laughs> but nobody was on the hook but myself, <laughs> as far as at the end of the day. And these are usually short-term plays. Your objective is to take the property and immediately turn around and sell it for whatever you can to get out of it. It's just extending the time that the seller didn't have. That's exactly true. And the reality is, is if it didn't sell at one price, it will sell at a price. But the other thing to keep in mind is the home looks really nice when it's furnished and there has stuff's in there. And when they take down the pictures and the nail holes show up and the wear patterns in the carpet show up, when they move out and you buy it, you're also going to incur some other expense because it's probably going to need some paint and it may need some carpet and it may need those things. So it motivates you when you look at it. It motivates you to get it sold really, really hard because you, you start encountering other expense. Plus, you've got you got to have insurance on the property, and the insurance company has to know that it's a vacant property because, and, I, and a lot of people have learned the hard way on this as far as consumers even, that most insurance policies for homeowners insurance policies don't have to cover a home if you leave it vacant more than 30 days. So people, when they're moving up or they're moving down or they're buying for investment and that property, that homeowner, that home sits there empty more than 30 days, God forbid it burned down and the insurance company says, well, you know, you violated part of the policy and you didn't uh, keep it occupied. So therefore, we don't have to pay the claim. And so if you're doing this right, you're going to want to make sure you got it insured and the insurance company knows that it's vacant and you're going to pay a higher premium for it. And you're not going to get 100% of the coverage that a consumer would get, but you sure want to have that insurance in case something happens to it. Did you have an attorney help you draft up your agreement? I did. When I built homes, I had a realtor I worked with that provided some guaranteed sales for me. And I knew that was a a benefit to me as a small builder. So when I became a, a realtor, I said, you know, I'm going to do that, but I didn't want to just take a contract we'd used because I was in the reverse role and I wanted to make sure I was protected. So I sat down with an attorney and we did that. And then, like I say, it grows each and every year. And we just think through the scenarios and we probably don't have them all covered, but we've got a lot more of them covered today than we do from before. And and when I say that, I'm not protecting my own interest solely. I'm protecting the interest of both parties because you don't want assumptions. Assumptions mean that they're thinking I'm doing one thing and I'm thinking I'm doing another, and that leads to ill will or bad feelings. And this business is all about creating referrals. So that's why our contract grows is to not just protect us, but to eliminate the assumptions that could be made in this process. I'd like to switch gears right now and talk about your geographic farming. You mentioned you have a geographic farm near your office. How did you pick your farm? We went through the area that we we want to serve, and we looked and said, which neighborhoods is it that we want to work in first? And then after we selected a lot of neighborhoods that we like doing business in, it was going back and looking at them and saying, okay, 
is it worth spending money in these areas because are there enough homes that sell on an annual basis that we can get a return on our investment? And then based on the number of homes that sold in a given area, did we look and see did any particular agent dominate that market that we were going to have to go head-to-head with, and did we want to? So after we put the neighborhoods to those criteria, then we said, okay, these are the neighborhoods that we'd like to do business in, we think, and they meet this criteria, and they meet this criteria. So out of there, how many of those do we want to market to, and how many can we afford to market to? And let's make sure that we've got this price point covered and a lower price point covered and a little higher price point covered because when the market shifts and the first-time buyers are buying, we want to make sure we're in that market. When the move-up buyers are buying, we want to make sure we've got name recognition in that market. So that was the thought process that went into our geographic farms. Did you assume that you would attain a certain market share when you were making that decision? We did. We assumed that if we are present in the communities and we're we're touching them on a regular basis, that we're going to get reasonable results. I've seen studies that say, you know, if you market to an area this many times in this much period of time, you can get X return. And I questioned whether or not those numbers would work in our marketplace. So I always, my assumptions are a lot less than that. I like to be conservative when I look at what I expect as far as number units in return. So that hopefully I'm pleasantly surprised, but I don't budget on getting a 10% return and end up getting 1% return. So, so that's sort of part of that process that we, when we go through, when we do that. David, how big is your farm? How many properties? We picked an area that, and again, it's multiple neighborhoods, but we picked an area that has several neighborhoods and the total house population in the area is just under 10,000 homes. How long have you been working this farm? We started at the beginning of 2014. We had some parts of it in 13 and a few parts of it in 12, but we increased it to those numbers at the beginning of 2014. How have the results been? Have you been getting listings? Have you been getting business out of the farm? We have. We get a little more business each month, each quarter. And, you know, that's the thing about farming is it, it's it's not an immediate return a lot of times. You you may get something right away, but you don't get, you know, you're building name recognition and you're building reputation in the neighborhood for getting homes sold. So it's brand marketing as well as hopefully immediate response in, you know, in certain areas. But when we say we can tell by the when the phone, the phone rings after we send the mailings, but we get more every quarter that goes along because we're making that many more impressions to the communities. Have you been receiving a certain number of listings either per month or per quarter? We have. What we're finding, it's kind of hard to track specifically. We ask the questions and we, when we ask the questions, we try to go three deep and ask, you know, more probing questions because when you ask a customer, you know, how did you hear about us? Well, we saw the sign in the yard. Oh, that's great. Were you just driving through the neighborhood because you liked the homes in that neighborhood and see what was for sale? Oh, no, we uh, we printed out the uh, the map when we were online. Oh, great. 
and you saw you were online when you found the house. Or do you remember which website it was that caused you to go online to look? Well, you know, we got that postcard in the mail that had your web address on it. <laughs> so we punched in the web address when we got the postcard. <laughs> Okay, so you got the postcard. <laughs> yeah, and we see your signs everywhere, and, you know, we get mail all the time. So, yeah, that's how we got there. So when you get that analogy, what do you credit that piece of business with? Was it the yard sign? Was it the off-site directional sign that got them there? Was it the Internet? Was it the color flyer in the yard? That, you know I mean? So, yeah, so we're getting business, and we're trying to dial it back to the area, but you can't say, oh, it's in that farm, in that neighborhood we farm, so everything that comes from that is due to the farming effort because my sister lives in there, my sister tells people in there, we do a good job. <laughs> We've got six past clients in there, and we invited them to our past client events, and they may have told the neighbors. <laughs> so it's really hard to dial down exactly where it came from, but we know that it works, and we know that business is good. So. But to answer your question, is it a specific number each month or each quarter? Yes. It just depends on how we choose to allocate it because is that piece of business that's next door to my sister <laughs> from my sister or from the farm? <laughs> now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealG TV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. That's a, a really interesting question for tracking purposes and for planning and budgeting at the end of the year for the future year to decide what type of marketing works and doesn't. When you're doing the tracking and the example you just gave, somebody calls, you went three deep in your questions and you discovered that they had contacted you because of a sign and the internet and a postcard. When you go to qualify that in your tracking, do you mark that under all three or do you give one a preference, either the first one or the last one? How do you mark that in your tracking the source of the business? We go with one source, and we we look at it and say, what do we think is the credit for this transaction? And it's tough because you spend money on the Internet, you spend money on postcards, you spend money on yard signs, but we make a decision on a case-by-case, case, but it only gets counted into the one area we'll we'll note it you know so when we're when we're looking at decisions at the end of the year on how to spend money next year that we had these that we had asterisks by so to so to speak but you can't say oh it's all from farming and everything in that neighborhood goes to farming and we'd like to because we'd like to justify oh man we that was a great return on our farming pieces but it's a mix and so in that example we just had, how would you have ranked the source? What would source would you have given in the example you gave us where it was a sign call, went back to the internet, went back to the farming postcard? I would have called that a farm piece because that's what it looks like was the source of the business. and The original source. Could have been, it could have been brand name awareness because that was mentioned also. But I would go with farming at that point and the geographic piece that generated the postcard. 
And that, of course, tells you where to put your money the following year, which is why it's such an important question to try to identify and why you're asking three questions deep, which was excellent. Thank you for that example. David, in the, the farming you mentioned the size of the farm is up to 10,000. How are you contacting those folks and how often are you contacting them? For those 10,000 households, we're going to touch them 12 times in 2015. We touched them 12 times in 2014. And out of those 12 touches in 2015, we do a newspaper that we produce or we we have produced, but we work diligently with the publisher, and we do a 16-page newspaper that goes to those houses, and we do five of those during the year, and then the other seven touches will be an 8.5 by 11 double-sided glossy postcard, and the topics of those will change whether it's just sold in the area or market stats or it may be schools, calendar, or variety of things, but being 8.5 by 11 gives us the ability to have more than one message on there so that we can try to attract the four different personality types to our postcard because you never know who's going to pick it up at the mailbox. What are the four different personality types and how are you attracting each? We use the DISC profile when we're thinking of the four different personality types. So, you know, you've got the D for the director, the dominant individual. You've got the I for the influencer You've got the S for the secure, steady, and you've got the C for correct. (laughs) So the D is not going to read a whole lot of paragraphs of fluffy material. They're going to want to see bullet points. They're going to want to see stats or something that grabs their attention. The I is going to want to know, oh, where's it at and who's involved and what's going to happen. The S is going to want to know the details of what we're talking about, is it safe environment, is it family outing, is it a family event or whatever, and the C is going to want to know all the details, you know, what time, you know, specific, you know, what time, where, what. So we find that and we use the DISC profile in our business on a regular basis, so when we're designing pieces, we're trying to, to do that, and if I'm a D and I design postcards for Ds, the other three personality types aren't ever going to read them because they don't really care the way I think. <laughs> so we try to look at that, and I don't want my my S or my C in my office to design all the postcards because the D will never read them. <laughs> so that's what our thought process is when we do that. The newspaper you mentioned, the 16-page newspaper, is somebody else designing that, or are you designing it? We're working with Discover Publications. They have some templates and they allow you to customize it as much as you want. So if you don't want to customize much, you can use the canned articles and fill in a few articles of your own, and they'll produce it and ship it and um, send it out. Or you can customize it as much as you want. Well, we spend a lot of time customizing it, and it's a full-color newspaper, and 90% of the articles and stuff in it are, are ours. We show all of our for-sale homes, our sold homes, information about what we do in the community, how we give back to the community, the charities we support, articles about market conditions, things of interest, because again, we're going to have different people read it. So some people want something out of it, others want something out of it, and 
in my mind, I know they just can't throw it away, but I know realistically that some of them do. But I'm hoping that somebody will read it, and I know they do because when we produce it and send it out, we get comments about it, we get phone calls, and we get business. What type of call to action do you have in that newspaper? What are you asking people specifically to do? It may be a variety of things. Obviously, if they want to know what their home's worth, they want, we want them to reach out to us. If they want to know what their home is worth today, but they want to know as the market changes, you know, we can do that and give them an ongoing update on the market conditions through Market Snapshot or something. We want them to know that we are the the real estate professional in the area and they've got real estate-related questions. They can bring them to us. Part of the farm area encompasses apartments, so there's information in there on why why you should buy a home versus renting. So the apartment complexes don't really like it when we mail into there, but the reality is the tenants do. So we mail in there, you know, and it may be their call to get pre-approved. They're called for information so that we can start working with them as buyers. Some of it's just fluff. You know, it talks about what we do in the community and how we're connected. And we're trying to, you know, you're trying to build rapport. You're not talking to people. You're you're giving them information about yourself. You're making yourself more personable. You're making yourself more personal. You know, I mean, they can connect with you or your team members from what they read in your in your publication. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to set ourselves apart from the other 6,300 agents in the marketplace. Are you typically asking the reader to call you or go online or both? Depends on what page of the newspaper they're looking at. <laughs> For some items, we've got call us. Other items, it's, you know, go online. Here's how you, you know, here's how you you find information online. So throughout the newspaper, there's different calls to action. It must be working for you since you just mentioned that you've been increasing the size of the mail-outs. Are you using every door direct mail to get your costs down? And is that why you're covering a, a broad area? Or are you more targeted and you're using first-class mail? Well, it depends on the audience that we're sending. The newspaper goes to all of our audiences. So our past clients, our personal sphere, and business affiliates or associates, those pieces go first class because they're not in a given farm area. Then the farm area itself then is divided down into carrier routes using every door direct so that we're able to hit the the specific areas that we want. Maybe not as specific as we could if we did first class mail where we could say, oh, let's send a XYZ subdivision. Now we send a, the, the carrier route that covers XYZ subdivision, but it has some pluses and minuses to the actual neighborhood. Well, David, I want to uh, switch gears one more time. The biggest source of your business is past clients and sphere of influence repeat and referrals. It accounts for about 75% of your business. Let's jump into that. How big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? That part of the database is about 5,000, between four and 5,000, depending on when you call. I've got several agents from across the country in my database because people that I meet at conferences, at various things that I go to, I put them on a mailing campaign, not as big as what we just talked about, but my newspapers go to them and some other pieces throughout the year because I'm trying to build referral opportunities throughout the country. So when you factor those in, you get a little closer to 5,000. But you've got the past clients that we've worked with. You've got the 
personal sphere of myself and my team members, and then the associates, affiliates that we work with. And then, like I said, then the farm piece on top of that. It sounds like you ask your team members to include their sphere of influence in your sphere of influence list. Is that correct? We market to them, but they are basically included in their personal sphere so that the people that they do business with, the people they know, will get team-generated pieces, but will also get some pieces generated by the team personalized for them. We take care of all the work, but my sales staff, their personal sphere gets pieces from the team and personalized to them. And then my personal sphere and my personal past clients get pieces that are generated from me and the team. So, Do you ask your administrative staff to include their sphere of influence in your list? I do. I think that everybody that works on the team should be proud to be a part of the team and should be willing to share with their personal sphere where they work and what they do and and their bonus accordingly if we get business from from those contacts. Now, you mentioned the list is somewhere between four and 5,000, depending on how we look at it. How many of those people are past clients? About 2,000 past clients, because even though we've sold 4,000 transactions, we've done multiple transactions for a lot of them. David, what type of software do you use to track your database? We used Agent Office, which we started with in the early 90s, and we stayed on it until 2013. And then in 2013, we migrated to Top Producer. David, how are you staying in front of your past clients and sphere of influence? How frequently are you contacting them, and how are you contacting them? Well, we have a a mailing campaign laid out that will touch them 17 times in 2015. And part of those touches will be to invite them to functions that are specific to them, my past clients and personal sphere. We'll, we'll do three events that are private for them, and we'll do a fourth event, which is basically a shred day, a recycle day at our office, and we'll, we'll send that out to everybody in the farm as well to invite them to come to our office. We'll have a shred truck on site if they've got documents and paperwork they need to shred. We'll recycle cell phones for a cell phones for soldier program, eyeglasses for the local children's hospital, and batteries for safe disposal. And then we also ask them when they're coming to the event if they would bring us some contributions for the local food pantry, and we'll gather those, and whether it's actual items or it's cash, they want to donate, and then we'll take the proceeds from our recycle day over to the local food pantry to help them stock their shelves. We'll do that event in April. In February, we'll do a private event for our past clients and personal sphere where we've rented a local movie theater, and we're going to show the movie Hoosiers, which being in Indiana, it's a basketball movie. <laughs> and uh, so we rented a historic theater, and we've got about 650 seats. We'll be doing a private viewing. Last year, we had a couple hundred people come to the event. This year, we're hoping to get between two and 300. So we send invitations to that event out as part of those touches that I talked about earlier. In July, we rent the Aquatic Center for a private party. Basically, it's a local city park that has a water slide, water park area, and after hours, they'll rent it out for private use. So we'll invite the same group 
to come, bring their friends and family and kids and come on down and enjoy a nice relaxing evening in the setting. Normally the pool holds around 1,800 people. When we're there, we've got three to four or 500 people. So it's not near as crowded. It's a chance for us to walk around, talk to people, and have a relaxed environment for you know a four-hour event. And our fourth event we do is in November. We give away holiday pies to our past clients in our personal sphere, and we've been doing that for a number of years. And we'll send out as one of those touches uh, basically a certificate that says, you know, thank you. We're, we want to say thanks to you for your support, your friendship, and whatever through the years. And if you want to call an RSVP for a holiday pie, we'll have them here in our office on the Monday and Tuesday prior to Thanksgiving. RSVP. We'll get the pie, come by on Monday or Tuesday, pick up the pie and get a chance to visit with us. We'll have some door prizes and some other things here. And we send that invitation out to that whole group of 4,000 to 5,000 people. Last year, we had 375 pies that we had collected. So we got a chance to have those people come to our office. We put a tent up with some temporary heat in it because in November, it's cool in Indiana. It was adjacent to our building, so you walk through our front door of our building into our building and then out the back door of our building into this tent that was heated and it gave an opportunity to give away some door prizes, sit and talk with people for you know a few minutes when they came in, hand them a nice pie and tell them thanks for being a supporter of ours. It's just a, a touch we enjoy doing. So those four events kind of target our past clients, our personal sphere, and it causes us to stay in front of them and in, in the end it leads to good relationships and opportunities for business. How many mail-outs are you sending per each event? You have the four events. Are you just sending out one invitation for each event, or are there multiple mail-outs per each event? Well, what we do is we we start touching them prior to. We've sent out a save-the-date piece. But again, it's it's going out to this group as one of our 17 touches through the year. So we've sent it out and said, you know, save the dates for these events, and then we'll send them specific invitation to the event as one of the 17 touches and then we'll send out a reminder so that it's not the only thing on the piece but it gives us a chance again with that piece which is usually anything from a letter in an envelope with a couple of business cards to a half a postcard depending on what the touch is geared for and then five of the 17 touches will be the five newspapers we talked about earlier because once we've put the effort and time in to create now, we want to get as much uh, use out of that newspaper as we can. So the Sphere is getting three pieces for each event. You have four events, so there's 12 contacts. And then you're also sending them a copy of the newspaper that you are also sending out to your farm. That makes up the entire 17 contacts. And that's all through the mail. Are you doing anything else to stay in touch with your, your past clients in Sphere? What I mean by that, are you making any phone calls or any email campaigns? Or is it all through direct mail? The nice thing about having the events is it gives you a reason to call. You can call and say, you know, hey, I hope you hope you got the invitation to come to the movie event in February. So it gives you that reason to call instead of say, hey, I'm I'm calling prospecting. I'm you know I need to talk to you and see if you got anybody who wants to buy or sell. We don't want to take that approach. What we want to do is call and say, hey, I hope you got the invitation to our event. I hope you're able to come. Tell me about what's going on in your life and do that. So what we look at is we don't prospect. We do make calls to build relationships. 
And by having the events to talk to them about, that gives us a reason to reach out to them. Yeah, I think you just had a great little phrase there, a little script. Tell me what's happening in your life. It sounds like you use that often, and that opens the door. It does. We try to use the Ford principle. Learned it a long time ago through various star power events and training that I've gone to, you know, family, occupation, recreation, dreams. So when you get that person on the phone, even if you're calling about the movie event, it gives you that chance to ask about their family, their occupation, you know, what's going on, what do they have planned coming up for recreation and what their what their dreams are. Because we can all help each other accomplish those things if we know about them. But if we don't know about them, we can't be much help to each other. You and your team, do you call everybody per each event or four times a year? I'd love to say yes. What we've set up as a goal for 2015 is is that everybody gets called at least twice. And that's much better than we did in 2014. (laughs) So 2013, we relied on the mail. 2014, we said, you know, let's, let's pick it up a notch because none of us like to prospect. So we don't. But when we looked at the phrase of relationship building instead of prospecting, all of a sudden it was palatable. <laughs> Do you have a smaller group of people that are, say, your your top 50 or your raving fans or, or super refers that you want to make sure that you call them first or you offer them something unique or special? We do. We have our our individual VIPs that we consider them. And so those are the people that, you know, send you repeat referral business. And I buy season tickets to the Indiana Pacers. I buy season tickets to this or that. And, you know, I whether it's going out and taking them to lunch, whether it's having coffee, catching up, maybe talking to them more frequently than the others, whether it's, you know, calling them and saying, hey, you know, I got tickets to the ball game if you'd like to go, whether it's going with me or whether it's just giving them tickets and going with their family. It's a way to say thank you. And, you know, we do that every time we get a referral from somebody, you know, it's a phone call thanking them for them. It's a personalized note card with a gift certificate for a couple of restaurants we rotate within our community. It's just something that says, hey, thanks. We really appreciate what you did for us. David, when you're talking to folks, do you ask directly for referrals or does it happen more organically? Both. Once in a great while, it happens organically. Most people don't realize that you'd like referrals unless you let them know. And we don't call every time and say, oh, do you have anybody you can refer to us? But when we talk to them in the beginning, I find that most people, when they're thinking about houses or whether they're looking or selling, they're going to have those conversations a lot more than they are in the rest of their normal life. So when we talk about that in the beginning, I always give them a stack of business cards and say, you know, hey, you're going to encounter people talking about houses that you've never realized were interested in houses. And my request would be, if you're happy with what I'm doing, pass my card along and, and tell them that we're taking good care of you. After closing, you know, you're going to have people that are helping you move and people that are excited to come see your new place. We've done a good job for you. Give us an opportunity for us to provide that kind of service to your friends and family. When I send out the out of the 17 touches they're going to get during the year, There'll be a couple of those that will be in an envelope with a letter talking about market condition, what's gone on with our team, what's gone on with our individual families, with a couple of business cards in there and a statement in there, you know, if you get an opportunity to pass these along to somebody, you know, that's wanting to buy or sell a home, we'd appreciate it. So 
it's a subtle approach. It's not a in-your-face, every-time-we-talk-to-you approach. But that's the way we choose to do it. David, do you have any recommendations for an agent listening who either wants to start building better relationships with their past clients and sphere of influence to generate repeat and referral business? They either want to start that process because maybe they're a newer agent or they're a veteran agent, but they've let it slide a little bit. Do you have any advice for them on how they, how they get a program up and running that they'll work? Immediately start saying thank you. Thank you for a referral. Thank you for talking with me today. Thank you for talking with me when I ran into you in the store. Thanks for your past support. Do it with a quick phone call, followed up with a personal handwritten note. That will add more impact to your media business than anything else you can do. David, could you please describe your team to us? I will start with my admin staff. When I got in the business and started building a team, and I, I started with my first team member in a year or year and a half after I was in the business, full-time team member. I had part-time early on. But I actually had three full-time administrative people before I hired anybody to help sell. And I think that's a mistake a lot of people make when they decide they want to build a team is, oh my God, I'm going to add another salesperson because they'll be able to sell and I'll be able to do twice as much in sales. But the problem is, is if you add somebody to your team and you don't have a support staff, you become the support staff for the person that you just brought onto your team. And that's not the goal of most people when they bring on somebody on their team. So what I do is I have a a very solid support staff base. I have my operations person who takes care of operations and marketing for me. Her roles include managing the rest of the team members, the processes that we use on the team, the systems that we use, and creating our our marketing campaigns, not solely on our own, but with input from a couple of us, but making sure that that calendar of mailings that we posted before the beginning of 2015, these are the pieces we want out on these dates. She makes sure all that happens because we all get involved in transactions and If it were up to me, I'd be busy on transaction and I'd miss two or three weeks of marketing because I was focused on something else. So her role is to make sure that all that stays on track, no matter how busy or not we are. And then I have an admin staff that photographs the properties we have. He goes out and measures the properties, photographs them, shoots any video that we do, puts the sign in the yard, the lockbox on the door, comes back and then gets that information put in the computer and out to the different websites, and he takes care of that. He takes care of our social media posts, Twitter posts, um, some of those things. I guess I do tweet from what I've been told. And uh, so his his role is in, in that capacity. I've got another admin person whose role is to help everything from answer the phones in the office to when we get a a new pending transaction, my sales team gives it to him and he organizes the file, gets such things such as pre-title ordered and the purchase agreement out to all the parties that need it and that. But he hands that file back to my sales staff and my sales staff actually manages the transaction from beginning to end. 
we're a little different than a lot of teams in that respect. But he helps them get it organized when it goes pending, when they get it under contract and it goes to closing. He turn, they turn it into him. He goes through and makes sure that it's all organized, that all the docs we need are there. If not, gives them a list of the signatures they missed, and they've got to get those things completed before they can get paid. So he takes care of making sure that all of our T's are crossed, our I's are dotted, as well as a list of other things that he does for us. And then I've got a part-time admin who comes in three days a week, helps with the phones, helps with general admin stuff, but she does a lot of our CMA preparation. My salespeople will do the research, but we want it to look pretty. We want it to look good. So she'll take their research information and then create some very attractive marketing pieces that go along with our CMA presentation. So when somebody calls and says, hey, we're thinking about talking to you guys about listing our home. Can you come out and see us on Thursday? Well, she's going to take that information and she's going to get our pre-listing book delivered to the house prior to my team salesperson's arrival so that we set the stage that we're a little different than others. Salesperson's going to make the presentation, bring it back, and if there's additional things that we need to do to make us stand out, then she's going to step in and help with that too. So that's our three full-time and one part-time admin person that we've got for the team. Then I've got two team members that work with me on the sales that I'm involved in. And some team leaders are leading teams and not selling. I'm not to that point in my team at this point. I'm still personally selling. But I've got two team members that assist me with that process. Both are licensed team members. They cross my T's. They dot my I's. They they may be prepping me with, oh, these people... I've been sending them information on these homes. They've narrowed it down to these six they want to see. You're going to show them these six in this order, and I think they're going to buy number five, and here's all the information. So they're trying to set me up so I can go out and succeed. So I've got two people that assist me with that process because I meet all the people face-to-face that I'm dealing with in that scenario. I closed 125 transactions last year with myself and my two assistants there that again they assist me they don't really they're not assisting the rest of the team just helping me with with what I'm doing now having said that they also have input on marketing and those things that because they're different personality types and I mentioned earlier we want to have the the C's the S's and the D's all give input on marketing pieces so so that's that part of the team and then I have three salespeople one of them is my listing-focused salesperson. His primary role is working with listings. He does work with some of the buyers that come from those listings, and he he works with the buyers and sellers from his personal sphere. But what I work with on the team is I do past clients of mine, not the team past clients, but personal clients that I've worked in the past, and I work people from my personal sphere, and from uh, referrals from affiliates or agents that I meet around the country. So those are the people that come in as my opportunity for business personally. I may not work all of them, but those are the ones that I work. I don't work team-generated business because I generate it for my team members. But my listing-focused team member does that. So if somebody calls from our farming, calls from our website, calls from whatever, then it goes to my listings specialist. He will go out make the presentation, get the house listed, 
work it through until it closes. Now, he doesn't measure the house. He doesn't photograph the house, but he gets the contracts done, brings it back in, hands it to my team member that does photography and measure, and he coordinates that process, hands the file back to my listing specialist and said, okay, it's on the market. Here's the printout from the from our MLS. Make sure it's the way you want it. I'll make any changes you need, and then that part's done. The listing specialist at that point coordinates it through offer inspections and on to close. And he did 98 transactions last year. My two buyer-focused salespeople take the calls that are come into the office based on somebody wanting to buy a house. And whether, again, from a, whether it's from a farm, whether it's from whatever source, but if somebody calls and says, I'm interested in buying a home, then it goes to one of the two of them. And they're on a rotating process, so they get the opportunities equal. They can list and sell if it's somebody from their personal sphere or somebody that they worked with as a past client of theirs. But the majority of their business comes in the form of buyer leads from team-generated business. So they work those. And again, they get the lead. They work the lead. They go out and show them houses. When they get it pended, they turn it over to our admin person for a few hours. He gets it organized gets it done, gets the pre-title ordered, whatever needs done, copy sent to wherever, and it gives it back to them and says, okay, give it to me when you close. So then when they get it closed, they turn it back into him, and he processes the file, make sure it's complete before it gets uh, closed out and filed away. So they do um, they do that in that manner, and it works pretty well for both of them. They both were in the 40-some transactions closed last year. So that's what makes up our team. So, David, your salespeople, I noticed that you're not using the term listing agent or buyer agent. Instead, you use realtor partner. Is that on purpose? It is. For many years, I had a listing specialist or a buyer specialist, and they had very defined roles. My buyer specialist couldn't list a house. My listing specialist couldn't work a buyer, and I put myself through those same roles. So, my buyer specialist's daughter or sister wanted to sell a home, it went to my listing specialist. And when that person's family member wanted to buy or sell a home, it went back to the buyer specialist. Well, you can tell that causes issues just from the definition. So what we found was let's let my team members work their personal sphere and past clients in either capacity as long as they've been trained in both sides of the business. So it gives both of them, both sides that the buyer and the seller side, gives them the opportunity to do more business with the same people and build more rapport. So now they're a realtor partner with a buyer focus or a seller focus, but the focus is basically internal. They're just a realtor partner to everybody outside. How have you set up the compensation program for your realtor partners? My sales staff is commission-driven. My admin staff is hourly or salary with a bonus tied to team production. But salespeople, I find, are, are better better as a eat-what-you-kill type of mentality. But I've done it both ways. I've done it every way possible, I think, through the years. But right now, I've got people with longevity with me, which is nice. I've had some people come on board, and, you know, I've worked out draw accounts, and I've worked out a salary for X number of months with a bonus. And 
but in the ideal world, I mean, most most salespeople want to get paid based on what they produce. So, and would you mind disclosing to us the percentages that you're paying out for your realtor partners? Well, probably not specifically, but I will say that we have two tiers. We have one tier which is team generated business, which is all the leads and everything that's generated by marketing or internet. And we have a second tier, which is higher, which is their personal sphere. So they make more money when they're working with their personal sphere or referrals from their personal sphere. Past clients are viewed in the future always as they originally came in. So if I got a piece of business that was team generated and that person now has done five pieces of business with me, they're always team-generated business because that's how we acquired them. If somebody's a personal sphere or referral from that, then the business they generate down the road is always based on how they came to the team originally. You're having your realtor partners do a lot of legwork to get that transaction from the time of contract all the way to closing. So I'm really curious, what type of compensation program do you have? What are those two tiers? We've got a... 35% fee that we pay on team-generated business and a 50% number that we pay on personal sphere. But where we're really different than a lot of people is all my team members are W-2 employees of the team. So what that means is the team pays their Social Security tax, their, their FICA, their federal and state unemployment taxes, The team pays their board dues. The team pays everything for them, including they use team-owned cell phones. The only expense my team member has to be a salesperson is gasoline and the maintenance of their own automobiles because all the other expenses are paid for by the team. So when somebody looks at that and says, oh, man, I wouldn't want to work for 35%, well, you take that 35% and you look at all the things that you're not paying plus the fact that the team's going to market to your personal sphere 17 times during the year. They're going to invite them to personal events. They're going to do a lot of things to generate business. So that 35 and 50% tier ends up being a pretty good amount of money. If you look at the numbers, you know, and somebody closed 50 transactions and walks away with a Seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollar net income, or somebody that does a lot more than that does, you know, close to a hundred transactions, and you know, makes one hundred and fifty, hundred eighty thousand dollars a year, net, net W two income with no expenses. That's a pretty good return on your time spent. It's more important how much they're bringing home. That's the number they should be focusing on. I, I think that's excellent. In this structure, are you? offering any benefits for your team members since they're all W-2 employees? For instance, are you offering any type of retirement plan or health insurance? We don't have health insurance, and there's only 11 of us, so we don't have any mandates to do health insurance, so we won't be doing that. We do have a group life insurance policy. We do have a simple retirement plan where the company matches dollar for dollar their contributions to the retirement plan up to a certain percent of their income annually. And like I said, you know, their cell phones, their, all their all their cost of being in this business to be there are taken care of for them. So 
it works. I mean, I've, I've got longevity with my team. I don't lose people. They don't usually leave here to go somewhere else because there's a better opportunity because when somebody leaves my team that's been in sales, usually they get out of the business. They don't go elsewhere. So I think it's a good model. It works well. We've got a good staff put together. We do have two empty seats in my office that at some point will fill with salespeople. We've got all the systems in place to to support them. I just want to make sure that my team members that I've got are well-fed and taken care of before I bring on another mouth to feed. Are you profitable? Yes. What's your net profit margin as a percentage of your gross revenues? That one, too many competitors would want to know. So that one, I've got to dodge. But I, I will say that I make a comfortable living. I do a good job of taking care of my staff, my team, and my clients. And I go home and go to bed at night, and I live comfortably. David, what drives you? I enjoy this business a great deal. I enjoy being a good provider to my wife and to my kids, my grandkids, to my team members. I enjoy providing good service to customers. The amount of time and effort this business takes to do it well, you have to enjoy it or you're going to burn out and you're going to you're going to get out of the business. So I enjoy things in life. I enjoy hobbies, you know, fishing, playing racquetball, riding my motorcycle, traveling, those things, but I don't know. I get a great sense of accomplishment by seeing the people that are around us all all day and all week and them doing well in their lives and taking good care of the people that trust us with the biggest uh, financial decisions of their life. David, why have you been so successful? I think it's because the standard we use when we're making decisions on our business are, is that the decision I would make regarding that customer if that customer were my mother my brother, my sister, or my kid. And if I'm comfortable with the decision that I'm making regarding that outcome, then that's the right decision. And if it's not, then it's the wrong decision. So if I treat every customer like their family and I look out for their best interests under that guideline, then I don't think I can be anything but successful. David, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Learn as much as they can about the market they intend to serve because people are going to rely on them and put a great deal of trust in their knowledge and the consumer won't know they're a newbie. They're going to be making decisions that affect their financial future based on information provided by their realtor. And that realtor needs to be knowledgeable. You're going to be affecting people's lives. You don't have any way of knowing how much impact the decisions and the information you provide to these people is going to mean to them. So be a good agent. And by that, I mean, know your stuff, know your market, know what you're doing. If you don't ask for advice from your broker or coworkers, but don't run on a whim. Don't run out of the back or the seat of your pants because the effect you're having on people's lives is um, is just huge. So do that, know it well, and practice being a good realtor, and you'll be successful.
David, do you think the top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? I've listened to them for 20-some years. I continue to listen to them on a regular basis. I listen to the interviews of the people I hear. I a lot of times will reach out to that individual, ask questions personally. When I go to a conference, I go somewhere, and that person's there. I try to meet them. I try to buy them a cup of coffee. I try to say thanks. I try to, you know, there's so many people in this business that have had so much of an impact on my career, and shame on me if I haven't told them how much of an impact they've had. But these interviews like this provide so much insight to people, and there's so much information to be gleaned from it. So, yeah, I I subscribe to yours. I listen to all the interviews from people you do. I listen to Variety. I've got cassette tapes here of interviews that I still listen to, CDs, and this stuff is invaluable. Well, David, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? Do it right. If you do it right every day, you'll be busy and you'll have a successful career. Well, David, you've done it right. And you've shared with us how, from your commitment to follow through on your promises in your guaranteed sales program, to your dedication to your goals and minimum standards to your consistent past client marketing campaigns and parties, to your expansion of your geographic farm, to your diligent tracking of your source of business, to your avocation and protection of your team members and past clients. You are doing it right and showing us the way. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 81 homes last year worth $36 million, in addition to owning her own thriving brokerage. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at freeleadtime.com. That's freeleadtime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.